I'm Jared Jaynes, and this is Impactful. First off, a big thank you to everyone supporting the show. And if you'd like to do the same, go to patreon.com slash impactful. This is the final episode of a three-part series, so if you haven't listened to those first couple of parts, I suggest starting from the beginning, because things could be a little confusing. All right, let's jump into it. So I got a lot of feedback on the last episode from you guys. And one of the things I heard more than once was that I didn't need to preface the story of my selfless experience by telling you to buckle in, because it never really got that weird. This was actually a bit confusing to me, since, as I mentioned at the time, that experience was the most profound inside of my life. But after listening to that episode again, I see where I might have downplayed it a little bit. So let me take another crack at it. When I said that I realized Jared was just another combination of imperfect maps, I wasn't saying that I'd found some sort of true underlying self. I was saying that this insight showed me that there was no such thing as a self. Not for me, not for you, not for anyone. What I saw in that experience was that there is no line that can be drawn between myself and the rest of the world. That every physical and mental experience is ultimately determined by and intimately connected directly to what I'd previously thought was the outside world, and vice versa. Billions of years and an infinite number of interconnected causes and effects led to that moment of realization. Same as this moment. I saw that everything is constantly changing, and nothing is independent. What I'm saying is that you wouldn't exist without the universe, and the universe wouldn't exist without you. And any attempt to separate the two is just a human fiction, or a map. Now, is that weird enough for you? All right, so where do we go from here? Well, last time we focused on how this insight liberates us from a self-constructed prison. But that's just a small part of the story. As you can imagine, when we view the world from this selfless perspective, it drastically changes the way we live our lives. One of the things that became glaringly clear to me was just how much more happy I'd become. Side note, I define happiness as simply being okay with the way things are. And looking back at my life now, I see that I thought I was a really happy or satisfied person, but I never could have guessed how wrong I was. While I might not have been constantly depressed or in pain, I realized that with the exception of a few extremely rare moments of flow or immense gratitude, my life was spent wanting things I didn't have and clinging to things I was afraid to lose. Or to put it more simply, avoiding or fearing pain and seeking or holding on to pleasure. The cruel thing about this is that not being okay with the way things are fills our experience with a constant dissatisfaction that we aren't even aware of. Because for the most part, it's always been there. And this highlights the difference between pain and dissatisfaction or suffering. Pain is inevitable, but we create every bit of our own dissatisfaction. And this seems to be the default human condition. Or, as Buddhism puts it, life is suffering. And it makes sense. The duality of pleasure and pain is a biological tool, or map. It helps us find food and make babies. And this map is deeply connected to our dangerous illusion of separateness. When we see this as a fiction, life becomes richer than we can imagine. I'm no theologian, but the concept of heaven actually makes a lot of sense to me from this perspective. 
something indescribably amazing or beyond this world. These myths are helpful because if someone has always lived in unsatisfaction, they can't imagine a world without it. And furthermore, they can imagine how profound happiness can actually be. When I arrived at that selfless state, it showed me very clearly how much I had suffered. It also led me to the unintuitive conclusion that even though it can feel like my suffering is limited to my body and mind, it's actually connected and shared with others. Or, to put it another way, our suffering has an effect on everyone in our lives, even if it's in subtle ways. For me, this led to a deep urge to help relieve others of their self-created suffering, in the same way I did. Side note, I'm not saying my experience completely and permanently freed me from unsatisfaction, but it was a big step in that direction. The funny thing about this whole suffering topic is that when I first got really interested in what makes people happy over a decade ago, I immersed myself in all the science and philosophy I could find on the topic. The common theme I kept running into was that the happiest people always had deep connections to something beyond themselves. And most often that connection was to others. And while I didn't find any completely satisfying explanation of why this was so important, I was convinced enough by the evidence to start spending more of my time trying to be of service. I got really interested in philanthropy and eventually started a nonprofit. And sure enough, I realized that it had a positive effect on me. But I still didn't really understand why until that selfless realization gave me the obvious answer. The more we avoid self-centered behavior, the easier it is to create distance from the very thing that leaves us unsatisfied and isolated, that illusion of separateness. And I have no doubt that my commitment to charity made it much easier for me to arrive at that perspective. Because being self-centered was my default. It's been said many times, but it's true. It's easier to act ourselves into a new way of thinking than it is to think ourselves into a new way of acting. And there are countless ways to be of service to others in our lives. In fact, so many that it can be overwhelming. So let's create some imperfect maps of service to simplify the ways we can help each other. The first map is the one I focused on when I became interested in philanthropy, the humanity map of service. After learning a lot about the nonprofit sector, I started Altruist with the goal of excluding no one from a helping hand. This is obviously a tall order, but the more maps I have, the more I'm able to help. Whether it's moral philosophy, economics, psychology, or even my own perspective on human suffering. I combine them all to select 12 standout nonprofits to support each year in a crowdsourced way. Alright, enough shameless other promotion. If you're interested, check out altruistprize.org. The main thing to say here is just that the humanity map of service aims to help people in need regardless of who they are. Or more simply, it excludes no one. Now, as we move on to our next maps, our focus will start to narrow. But before we do that, I want to talk about why we would ever want to narrow our focus, since it ends up excluding people in the process. Well, I think there are a lot of elements to this, and I could do a whole series on the topic. But for now, I want to highlight the two reasons I see as the most important. First, I think it's pretty uncontroversial to say that the more we know about those we're trying to help, the more sophisticated our attempts to do so can be. And second, that each group is made of and highly reliant on its smaller parts. And the ways we help the whole are different than the ways that we help the parts. And I hope we can all agree that to exclude either completely doesn't make a lot of sense. 
All right, now back to our maps. I see humanity being made up of smaller groups defined by their culture. Each one has its unique ways of communicating and collaborating through shared languages, ideas, and stories. So when we act in the cultural map of service, we use these commonalities to positively impact everybody in the targeted culture. The first type of action that comes to mind when I think about this map is usually art, since it often relies so much on its audience's cultural background. And in many ways, I see this podcast fitting in this map, since I primarily use an American or Western style of communication. As you can imagine, the more removed someone is from my culture, the harder it will be for them to connect to the show and its ideas. Now, the next map of service we've talked a lot about in part one of this series, the tribal map. Much like a culture, a tribe is a group of people that share certain characteristics. But what makes it different is that it's small enough for the individuals to interact directly with a good portion of the people in the tribe. In these smaller groups, even more specialized ways of communicating with each other are created by using specific language and ideas that only members can fully understand and wield. That way, conversations can quickly move to a more nuanced discussion without rehashing the foundations that hold the tribe together to begin with. Being of service in a tribe requires us to use these communication aids to help ensure that the impact of the tribe is positive, whether it's at a group or individual level. Which brings us to the last map of service, the personal. This one's pretty obvious, but we navigate this layer anytime we interact directly with someone. And while shared cultural and tribal backgrounds can be helpful for communication here, the key difference here is that we aren't limited to our broadly generalized group characteristics. We're able to connect and help each other in a personalized way. Or to get back to what we covered in part two, we work to understand our personal maps and then find ways to reduce the suffering caused by attachment and or aversion to them. Sometimes that can mean being a good listener as they verbalize and, in turn, analyze these maps with your help. Other times it can mean relating to their experience and creating a different perspective. And sometimes it can mean offering some advice. But we should be careful with the advice, since it often ends up being more about the giver than the receiver. It's important to remember that every personal interaction is an opportunity to be of service. And if we factor in the insight of selflessness here, we see that this personal map also includes being of service to our own selves. That was the sound of air quotes, by the way. Which brings us back to what we covered last time. Finding ways to reduce the suffering caused by our individual maps can be really helpful. But at the end of the day, the more we believe in the foundational map of the self, the harder it is to be happy. So if we can find ways to soften our self-belief without bringing up defenses, we're on the right track. Now, of course, this is no easy task. Each one of these imperfect maps of service relies on our imperfect tools while we navigate them. Whether it's science, philosophy, art, mindfulness, language, compassion, or any other aspect of human experience. Wielding these things requires a lot of practice, especially when we remember that all of our maps can overlap and conflict with each other. And sadly, the world is just too complex for us to know the outcome of our efforts with certainty. Sometimes the best intentions used with the most intelligent action we're capable of can still lead to poor outcomes. Yet, it's less likely. And this is the best we can do. Act with good intentions and learn from our experiences. 
And when I say good intentions, I mean what we brought up in the beginning of this episode. Avoiding behavior that reinforces the illusion of self. Or, to be more specific, acting as if everyone is equally deserving of relief from suffering. Because the moment one is seen as lesser or greater than another, it only reinforces the self versus other delusion, which is ultimately responsible for all of our shared suffering. Again, not to be confused with pain. But the toughest thing about acting selflessly is that knowing what our true, often mixed intentions really are is extremely hard and requires us to know ourselves deeply, which makes self-knowledge the foundation of every map of service. Now, on the bright side, the information we have to act on is the most accessible at the personal level, which is why it's a lot easier to know and help ourselves than it is to serve humanity as a whole. As you can see, here, this starts to sound a bit paradoxical. On one hand, I'm telling you that service to others is what helps your self-development the most. And on the other hand, I'm saying that serving yourself is the best way to serve others. Unfortunately, these are both true. It just depends on your circumstances. The key is to help those we think we can help the most in each moment. And to do this while striving to leave the idea of self and other out of the picture. This is what it means to be selfless, to be committed to everyone's well-being. Which really speaks to the toughest aspect of everything we've covered in this series. From our tiny human perspectives, seeing the bigger picture can be extremely hard. But this is because of that very convincing biological map of duality, insisting that it's actually our territory. Self versus other, good versus bad, black versus white— if we mistake these simplifications as the real world, we can never really be happy, because a life of duality is just fear and craving. But when we see these human fabrications for what they really are, we can learn to use them instead of letting them use us. And while it might be uncomfortable at times, especially in the beginning, it can lead us to some conclusions that sound contradictory on their face, but point to something bigger than ourselves. Things like, the best tribal strategy is to join all of them and none of them at the same time. Or to truly understand yourself is to see there's no self at all. Or that the way to relieve your suffering is to see it as no different than the suffering of others. As always, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you guys next time.